Welcome to the Conscious Women Entrepreneurs Podcast. This show offers wisdom, inspiration, and tips on how women entrepreneurs build their businesses and how they incorporate mindfulness and spiritual practices to become successful. I'm your host, Martina Thomason, a certified entrepreneur coach. I specialize in helping women entrepreneurs overcome limiting beliefs to get more clients and grow their income. Now, let's jump into today's episode. I hope you'll enjoy it. Hello, friends, and welcome to this episode of the Conscious Women Entrepreneurs podcast. I am excited to introduce you to Dr. Sarah McKay. She is an Oxford University-educated neuroscientist, educator, presenter, media commentator, director of the Neuroscience Academy, and author of the Women's Brain book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones, and Happiness. She teaches coaches, therapists, teachers, and other helping professionals how to easily access, understand, and implement evidence-based neuroscience strategies into their everyday life and work. And so I'm, I'm really thrilled to have Dr. Sarah on the show as I've read her book, um, or parts of it at least <laughs> for now, and followed her for a while. And I have done her free 10-day masterclass, and I'm really excited about all of her material. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Oh, thank you very much. I'm 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 honored that you you wanted to chat. So thanks. <laughs> awesome. So what led you to become a neuroscientist and specifically with the focus on women's health? Oh, look, well, the neuroscience part is very, very old. <laughs> and the women's health is very, very new. So I studied neuroscience as my undergraduate degree. Um, I grew up in Christchurch in New Zealand and met this very new discipline of neuroscience, I have to say, certainly within the academic disciplines of, of universities in the early 90s. When I was in my first year, um, I was in a first year psychology lecture and we were, we were taking a look at sort of the biology of psychology and the lecturer was describing synapses, the connections between neurons and how they work. This was 1993. And I was just, that was it. I was—I fell in love. I was captivated. I just thought it was the most interesting thing ever to understand the biology of the mind and the brain and behavior. Because I certainly had never studied anything like that at high school to that point. And as it as it was, there was a new degree discipline at Otago University to do this brand new degree course and absolutely loved every moment of that. It's such an incredibly broad, deep and rich subject. There's always something new to learn. And certainly in, in recent years, more and more of the ideas are starting to be more applicable to our daily lives. There's still lots of huge gaps, but that's really exciting. Um, the, and the women's health part came about quite randomly when I was approached by a a book publisher, a woman who's now my agent, actually, who asked if I wanted to write a book. And I said, not really. That sounds <laughs> hard work. And if I'm going to write a book, it has to be a really good idea to keep me really engaged. And we started chatting about different articles I'd written. I was, I was doing some work for the ABC here in Australia at that point in time. And um, I'd written an article on menopause and brain fog. And she said, well, why don't you write a book on menopause? And I was like, because I'm in my early 40s. That's a bit weird. <laughs> Don't, don't care, don't know anything about it. And then she asked me about this concept of baby brain where women 
feel foggy and forgetful when they're pregnant, which I roundly dismissed because it didn't exist when I was growing up in New Zealand. It wasn't anything I'd ever heard of. But then I realized, you know, we talked about menopause and we talked about pregnancy. And I thought, well, you know, I don't know anything really at all about women's health through the lens of neurobiology. I've been working in neuroscience for decades at this point, but I'd not really ever considered sort of the female lifespan through the lens of neurobiology. And that was really a bit of a journey of learning for me when I was writing the book, which for me was where that that sort of joy came from. That was when I went, yeah, I actually do want to write a book on this topic because I just love that intellectual challenge and the that sort of time. It's really quite indulgent, really, to be able to explore an idea in, in great detail. And of course, talk to all the amazing people who work in that in that research field. So that was the the woman's. It was really just kind of came about over a cup of coffee, to be honest. Wow, <laughs> and and it's and it's been fascinating. I learned so much writing the book. I went in with not really very many preconceived ideas about neuroendocrinology with my field and it's been really cool because since my book came out a couple of years ago you know I've kept an eye on the field and there's there's so many new findings and so much new research coming out within as I call it the kind of the the the, the puberty periods pregnancy and perimenopause space these big hormonal sort of transitions in women's lives are actually big neurological shifts. Yeah, and I I think it was in your book. I might have read it somewhere else, but I think it was in your book where you were saying that most research is done on sort of the average male, which is like 70 kilos, and it's mm-hmm. like women are really not a significant part of the research uh, or haven't yeah, been. Well, yeah, and I mean, I, I have, I'm reasonably kind of um, agnostic on that in, in some ways, and I, I think there's plenty of research done in certain aspects of women's health. I call it kind of bikini medicine, or, yeah. you know, the parts of the body covered by a bikini. <laughs> plenty of research. I mean, breast cancer research yeah. is just, you know, phenomenal. We have such high, um, you know, survival rates now because yeah. of all of the research that's gone into that. Um, and traditionally, a lot of research has been done in, male, in, in, in young, fit, healthy men because it's like, who wants to volunteer for you know, a research study or who wants to put their hands up for a pharmacological trial. Well, we're not going to take pregnant women. We're going to take the youngest, fittest, healthiest. And it's just, and it's often it's the males that have put their hands up. Some of it does, of course, hark back to, you know, old patriarchal ideas about an ideal subject to study. Sometimes it's, it's quite sensible to exclude hormones from a study. Um, and, and sometimes it's just kind of tradition. It's really changing, though, and I think it's important to say that, that there's not some kind of global conspiracy of neuroscientists out there only studying males and not studying females. There's, yeah. a, there's a growing recognition, and a lot of that's because women are speaking up and asking questions and, and conversations at opening up lines of research. So I think it's a really exciting time to be in this field. And there is so much we don't yet know. For me personally, I'm not too worried about what hasn't been done in the past. I'm just really curious to see what yeah. is emerging in the future because I just really like learning new stuff. And yeah. that's I'm fine for me if it hasn't been found out yet. I'll <laughs> yeah. just be sitting in, um, Yeah. Amazing. Very nerdy. <laughs> no, I love it. I'm, I'm the same. I mean, like, you're probably a whole whole other level than me, but I'm, I'm the same. Like, just personality trait from all of the personality tests, like, learning is on the top. Like, just love diving into things. Yeah. So I can definitely relate to your excitement around research and, and discovering new things. Um, so you offer boot camps online courses and yeah. um, would you like to talk a little bit about what exactly it is that you're offering yeah for sure so before 
I sort of started my own business. I worked in academic research for many years after my PhD and then always had a bit of a, I, I kind of felt there was a little bit missing. I loved, I loved academia. I loved lab work. I loved research, but I always kind of felt that it was not necessarily directly applicable enough to people and what, you know, everyday humans were interested in. And, and yeah. so I, I left academia, I moved into science communications and actually found myself working within a, believe it or not, working for Saatchi, the big advertising agency, working for kind of a division of theirs doing healthcare communications. And I spent a lot of time putting together um, professional development training programs for clinicians, which is a really cool space for me because I get to indulge that love of learning and and taking ideas and and presenting them and creating education programs for, for smart people. Yeah. I really love that space. And what I saw over time when I, I then started working for myself rather than being an employee, I was I was also carrying on doing a lot of freelance work, working in that CPD professional training space. But I saw this growing interest of people out there in, in terms of wanting to learn more about neuroscience, wanting to understand applied neuroscience. How does neuroscience, how, how can we take neuroscience from a lab and, and, and move it into our lives? And how particularly people in the helping professions, coaches, therapists, teachers, people working perhaps within leadership and, and business, how can we use neuroscience to do our jobs better? Yeah. And I saw there was there was a lot of chat and a great deal of enthusiasm about it, but often that far exceeded any true applicability for neuroscience. And I saw there was this really interesting space where I could offer uh, neuroscience training courses for people who are really curious and desperately keen to learn more about <laughs> neuroscience but without yeah. having to go to university we spend particularly if you want to talk about education and women in STEM and that sort of space there's so much focus on girls in high school and, and young women moving into university and I'm like what about the people who went to university 20 years ago like let's not forget that adults in their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s like to be educated too and have a have a love of learning and there's a lot of lifelong learners out there and there's a lot of people doing amazing work who are growing ups who don't have access to university level education or don't want to go back and do that and I I saw that there was amazing people doing good work and I could provide them with the type of brain science education that they needed and wanted and so that was how my training programs evolved and I, I, I run them online and I um, have, have carried on doing I've been running those for about five or six years now and they are amazing. I love the work I do amazing yeah and and that's the thing like you were saying it's been so inaccessible before like I I go on um, Google scholars and dig up you know like mm-hmm. science around neuroscience every now and then like if there's something specific that I'm looking for mm-hmm. or just for fun if I've heard something and through my master's degree like I learned more about uh, reading science and not everyone can like not everyone knows how to do it you're very dry and boring even for scientists (laughs) by and large academic articles are written for other people working within the space so they're filled with acronyms and jargon and 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 they're not written they're not public outreach they're written for the other people working in the space to kind of contribute to the field um you know there's pros and cons to that um i i understand that so if you aren't from a particular discipline and even within the neuros there's heaps of papers I pick up and I'll start reading them and I'm like I have no idea what any of this is about (laughs) you know I'll have to kind of you know rewind or go and go and do a little bit of text read read a textbook chapter before I can then understand 
the academic literature. So it is, I find it hard sometimes and boring sometimes because it's dry. Yeah. Um, and so if you don't have years of um, experience behind you like I do, it, it wouldn't make sense. Yeah. Um, and that's, and I think that that's not, that's, you know, fair enough if you're young and you want to go off to university or if you're older and you want to head off and you want to learn that process. But if you don't, it shouldn't be accessible and it shouldn't be out of reach. Especially for people who are doing the really good work that they do where they're helping other people and it could just be that little tool in their toolbox that made a difference or sharpen a tool that they already have, so to speak. Amazing. And that sort of leads me into my um, other questions, which are a little bit more about the theory around neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And I was just mentioning before we hit record that I would love to hear your take on or reference to theory about um, change because as entrepreneurs like change is one of the major pillars of of actually transitioning into to entrepreneurship because uh, working corporate and, and getting your paycheck and and you know like not having so to lie so heavily on your willpower and you know to get yeah. things going is completely yeah. different so what is your take on that yeah I think change even as a concept is funny in a way because it only exists as a word because it's hard to do we wouldn't need to set goals and <laughs> we wouldn't need coaches and we wouldn't need teachers if just setting a goal and achieving it just happened and as easy as it does walking down the hallway you know and deciding to have a glass of water and going and pouring one if, if everything that we did was that easy change wouldn't be a concept yeah um and it's not easy and there are a number of reasons for that and I suppose from a neuroscience perspective I kind of approach it I like to kind of break it down and think about it from the perspective of how brains work. And I come back to this idea, which I've kind of partially taken out of organisational psychology and added my own twist on it. I always think about change as being a matter of the will, the want or the way. And the way, kind of go backwards there, way is the sort of, you know, the cognitive skills, the knowledge, the information that we have a really perhaps a clear goal, whether or not you have a goal or a project you're working on, depends which you prefer. But you're you you are very clear about the information that you need to get there. And that's very much a cognitive type skill. It's about perhaps learning a process or having someone teach you some information. So that's way, so that's that's very much a, a cognitively focused um, sort of aspect or dimension of that. The other, another aspect of it is will, and that's very much around, do you have the, you know, we could have the will of the way. Do you have the motivation? Do you have the desire? Do you have the emotional regulation to get somewhere? And that's very much around a different set of, of skills. The other, you know, the way is very cognitive. This is much more kind of emotional. It's sort of tapping into emotional resilience and regulation and wanting and desiring. You could have a very clear path in front of you for example, like many young people do at school, they just don't care, you know. You may you may have an, an enormous desire to do something and be incredibly motivated, but the way isn't clear. You don't have the skills or information. So you can see we can kind of tease those two out, the will and the way. And sometimes with all the will and all the way in the world, the change, the struggle is still there. And often what we see then is we come back to this idea of want, and that's spelt W-O-N-T, no apostrophe, not W-A-N-T, want is an old-fashioned word for habit. Oh. And what we sometimes see is it's not a matter of will, it's not a matter of way, 
It is that we perform an automated behavior, a true automated behavior or a true, true habit, whether that be a thought, whether it be a behavior, is once it's kind of learned and wired in, we do it without thinking and we can't sort of break a bad habit. Often we're kind of fighting against a habitual behavior. Um, so for me, it's really when we're thinking about change and if we want to take a neurobiological lens to it, is to consider where is the struggle? Is it is it a matter of will? Is it a matter of way? Is it a matter of want? Or perhaps it's some you know awkward com combination of the three. And if then you are perhaps helping someone, you can work with them to identify: is there a habit that you're not wanting to perform anymore? We need to find the cue or the trigger for that and learn a new desirable habit in its place. Or is it you don't know what to do, but you want to get there? Perhaps you know you have a real great desire to. Um, improve your cardiovascular fitness because you have a family history of heart disease um, and you're very very driven because you know you've had a sister hospitalized with a heart attack say you've got a lot of desire and motivation but you don't have the first clue about how to put together an exercise you know program that's suitable for someone of your age you have no idea about what foods to eat and you're really confused about cholesterol that's that's really you know we, we can kind of start to unpack various behavior change problems by approaching it in that quite systematic framework. Yeah. And so from the little small amount that I've been reading about neuroscience, there's also talk about, um, you know, a, a fairly new ish discovery uh, about neuropathways. Like some time ago, we didn't, think that the brain was plastic but but it is and and so when it comes to change I've I've read something about um having to sort of strengthen or create new neural pathways when we're creating new habits so is is it right that we're actually like literally having to change our brains physically yeah, almost on yeah. a physical level yeah I think it's probably you know neuroplasticity's um, quite a thrilling, thrilling word. I often talk about the seductive allure of neuroscience. And, and neuroplasticity, the brain is plastic. Essentially, that means the brain can change in response to experience. And, yeah. you know, all of our lived experiences that come in through everything that we see and hear and feel and also our memories and our thoughts can in turn change our brain. So our brain's constantly changing and being pruned and shaped um, throughout the lifespan. And it's certainly far, far easier in, in infants and children to, to change. We know how easy it is for children to learn multiple languages if they are you know, brought up in bilingual or trilingual households. It's much harder to do that with great fluency if you don't start learning other languages until you're in your 30s or 40s. So young brains are far more plastic and malleable. Now, whether we, I suppose the, without wanting to get too much into the neurobiology, I'll just like try and hold myself back. <laughs> There are many, many, many different ways in which the brain can change, whether it literally grows new new neural pathways, new axons form, whether new connections you know, form synapses between existing neurons, whether existing um, networks are, are kind of pruned away in much the same way you put little branches off a tree. There's a lot of different ways in which experiences can shape our brain. So any change that happens, whether it be remembering um, you know, you pick a book up and you remember what you read in the book the day before, your brain changed in some way to be able to hold that memory in there. Or whether it be a structural change that we see taking place because someone has perhaps played the violin for 
three decades and we're going to see structural changes in their brain of the professional violinist that we wouldn't see in me, who's never even held a violin before. <laughs> um, there's a lot of different types of sculpting and change that, that we see. When we are learning something new, essentially our brain is changing, but it's just happening at the level of the synapses, the, 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 that kind of chemical gossip between two neurons. When a habit is formed, a, a true automated behaviour or habit, people often say brushing your teeth, not even just remembering to brush your teeth every day, that remembering to brush your teeth every day is a habit, but also the actual movement that you make around your mouth with your toothbrush, with your hand is probably a habitual motor movement. You probably do it exactly, without even thinking, you probably brush the same teeth in the same order and spit the same amount of times each time you do it, right? Yeah. That is a that is a true habit. You're, not, you're probably busy thinking about what you're going to do at work when you're brushing your teeth. You yeah. don't need to. And, and what, what happens is the brain is quite lazy. It doesn't want to expend any more energy on any doing anything than it has to. And so it moves these kinds of chunks of behavior into a different part of the brain from where we think. And that part of the brain is called the striatum. And that's kind of where learned skills or learned behaviors live. And they are very much in, in circuits. And I don't like to use words like hardwired, but they're very much um, stored in circuitry almost permanently. And I think that's what's really interesting to know about a habit is you can't kind of unwire it. It's a little bit like trying to unlearn to ride a bike. Once you know how to ride a bike, it gets stored in your brain. Yeah. You, you can't decide to unlearn how to ride a bike. You can't just, I'm going to think my way out of knowing how to ride a bike. And a lot of habits are like that. What we've really got to do is we've got to understand the cue or the trigger and then learn a new behavior. And repeat that over and over again until that learning becomes permanent again. The brain will shunt it down into circuits where it can get stored more permanently. Exactly the physical form of that storage, we don't really kind of know. It's probably just to do with the, the as I say, the chemical gossip between neurons and the, um, the, the, there'll be many sort of structural and also physiological changes that take place. Yeah, interesting. So so you're saying that it's stored in certain areas of the brain and a psychologist would say that it's uh, become subconscious. It's sort of, is it, the, is it sort of the same yeah, thing or no? Sort of the same thing. I mean, using the word conscious and subconscious is, it makes it really complicated. I don't even like using that word. There's <laughs> okay. so many different meanings. We can talk about, I don't know, some people are not my kind of seen universal consciousness or whatever that means. And then we think about being conscious or we can think about being awake. We can think about being asleep as being unconscious, but that's different from being anesthetized, which is different from being in a coma, which is different from being dead. Um, you know, we slip in and out of consciousness multiple times a day. You know, we become conscious of something around us. So I don't like to use the word conscious because it's just muddly. And then you add in spirituality and dualism to it. It's uh, set, I set that aside. I just say automation. <laughs> um, you're not thinking about, you don't have to think about how to brush your teeth. You don't have to think about how to ride a bike. There is an automated motor, motor learned sort of circuit in your brain, which carries out that function. And, and in a way that frees up your thinking mind to when you're riding your bike along the road to be paying some attention to what's going on around you, but you're probably still also then playing a little story in your head about what you should have said in that conversation with your boss yesterday or you know, some story you heard on the radio. You don't you don't need it's it's happening below the level of your consciousness, but as soon as we introduce that word, 
I just think it's really complex yeah. as a neuroscientist. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, like another layer of that is sort of the people that are more into the somatic therapy, you know, like they would say that it's um, now within our muscle memory and yeah, all of those things. Not in your muscles, it's in your, it's in your neurons. It's, yeah. It's, <laughs> muscle memory is a really, um, because your, your muscles are intimately connected with your brain, large parts of our, I mean, our brains evolve to move our bodies through the world to control our muscles and our movement. But muscle memory, for example, you know, I haven't been skiing for a year and a half, but I'm going in a few weeks, fingers crossed. I will remember how to ski. It's not that my legs remember. It's the, the, the circuitry in my brain that controls the muscles that know how to ski. I have you know, perhaps not a very well-refined um, motor circuit, which has um, learned how to ski. And it's, it's, it's stored in our brain, but our brain obviously controls our motor neurons and that controls our muscles. So the signaling you know, gets down to our muscles and then obviously there's a sense comes back up to our brain. You know, you would you would still remember how to ski even if your legs got cut off. That's an awful kind of analogy. Um, but you would still be able to, you know, visualise that movement very, very clearly in your mind and know how to move even if you didn't have the use of your legs. It's stored in the, the, the motor skills part of the striatum, yeah, which is, I think is really interesting to stick. But then using the word muscle memory... Yeah. Okay. So, so that's really interesting. So we've been talking a little bit about um, change and uh, the will, the way and the, the want or, or, or the habit and how that sort of works. But let's also talk about your journey in terms of your entrepreneurial situation. <laughs> so I know that you're big on, you know, brain health, obviously. And so what are some of the things that you really focus on in terms of having a, a healthy brain and and how to regulate yourself uh, with stress and all of those things in your business. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my absolute number one priority is sleep. I always prioritize sleep and I sleep very, very well. I'm a, you know, I'm a, a good sleeper and I'm, I'm usually in bed most nights by nine and I am very fortunate to kind of live up on a hill and I my bedroom faces east, so I, I sleep with the curtains open and me and my husband kind of wake up and the sun kind of rises, which oh, is wow. a really nice way to kind of sink ourselves into nature. I'm not sure whether he thinks about it like that, but I do. But I'll, I'll, I'll have a really short afternoon nap if I'm feeling a bit sort of either stressed or just fighting off that urge to sleep in the middle of the afternoon, but I'd never, never sleep longer than half an hour because that then disrupts your night's sleep. And then everything else kind of follows along from that. I'm not particularly wedded to any type of sort of style of eating, although I do, I drink coffee in the morning, black coffee, usually a couple of long blacks in the morning, and I typically don't eat until lunchtime. I don't purposefully fast, but often I just not eat until lunchtime. And then I do try and eat low carb. Just because I have a I have a lot of heart disease and high blood pressure and high cholesterol in my family, so I do have to work quite a lot harder, I think, than a lot of other people my age in my mid forties to kind of work on that aspect of, of my health, and, and I manage that just by it's easier to not eat than to try and decide what to eat sometimes. Yeah. So I, I do that, but I'm not particularly. I don't. I don't beat myself up over that. There's enough other things that I beat myself up in my own head about. I walk my dog for about an hour and a half most days. I live quite close to. You, I don't know whether you know the Northern Beaches. I live really. Close I live to there. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. And I ocean swim. I do. You would know. I do the Bold and the Beautiful um, swim at Manly. Um, 
which is a really important thing for me. And I think one of the, I mean, I don't know whether you want one of my sayings now, but I think when it comes to beyond sleep, when it comes to any rebalance I need, and right now I'm, I've had a really sad week. And so I just fall back on this idea that nothing, you know, the best cure for anything is, is salt water, sweat, tears, or the sea. And sometimes all three at once, sometimes I'll just like grab the dog and go for a walk along Manly Beach and cry my eyes out behind my sunglasses and just look out at the ocean and that kind of the sweat, tears and sea all in one go. And this sounds so nerdy, but you just like kind of read a little neuroscience research paper or something <laughs> and kind of muse over that and um, listen yeah. to a neuroscience podcast or something. You know, I've got distraction perhaps. I don't know whether that's wise, but that's how I manage my, manage my stress and keep myself on an even keel. Yeah, focusing on something that we're interested in and excited about, probably, you know, like at least it's mm. it's not a destructive distraction. So. No, 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 I probably have drunk a bit too much wine. This <laughs> I don't, don't normally, I, and I'm quite forgiving of my fault. Yeah, yeah, as, as we should, we're humans. Um, yeah. So what would you say before we sort of go into uh, some of the rapid uh, fire questions, I've got just two questions and, and one of them is, what would you say as an entrepreneur is one of your biggest lessons, like actually being in a business for yourself? I still struggle and it's a, it's an ongoing lesson for me. And I'm totally in that space of, I just indulge my intellectual, you know, kind of curiosity and, I, and I'm wallowing around in the neuroscience and I still struggle and I'm, and I'm like 46. And I'm like, when is this ever going to end that fear of what other people think? Yeah, um, it's a lesson that I'm continually challenging myself with and learning all of the time to be true to myself. And as a science communicator, it's it's hard because you're constantly taking a complex idea and trying to view how you're talking about that from someone else's perspective. So you kind of feel like you're always holding a mirror up or always thinking, what would the imaginary crowd out there be thinking of this idea? And I have to remember it's around what do they think about the idea, not what do they think of me? Yeah. And so I, my, my ongoing lesson is to manage that, that inner voice that, you know, what if I fail? What if I'm not perfect? What will other people think of me? I, I, I wouldn't say I've learned that lesson yet, but it's, I suppose, a, an ongoing an ongoing challenge yeah. for me if I do. But yeah. worth having that, that challenge because I love the science so much uh, and I love sharing that so much, you know. <laughs> Yeah. There, has, there has to be some friction in there and that's where it really lies. Yeah, for sure. And um, I actually just recently wrote a, an episode on imposter syndrome and, mm-hmm. and you know, like, and, and a large part of that as well is what people think of us. And it's like 70% yeah. apparently, according to the science or the journal of human behavior or, or something like that it said that so many people are struggling with with those exact thoughts like the the imposter yeah, yeah, yeah. what would and people think and sure, all that for sure and for me it's um like I, I kind of dealt with imposter syndrome many years ago when I went off to Oxford and you know like if you're going to go anywhere and think that you don't belong it's probably somewhere like that and then I all felt the same way and I, and I have and I have never really felt I don't deserve to be somewhere or I don't belong or um, and I came from a pretty humble home. My mum and dad left school when they were both 15 and I'd never met anyone who went to university before. And I never really found that there's been any barriers in the way the barriers have always been in my own mind. And I suppose it's still, and it's, and it's I think it's growing up in New Zealand, that tall poppy syndrome. It's yeah. not even, 
what people I've never met think. It's the people who I care about the most. I think about me. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's that's an ongoing daily daily battle. Yeah. Um, sure. So. Yeah, that's pretty. If I need a coach, that's what it would be about. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was actually going to ask you that. Like, have you had one? <laughs> have you ever had a coach? Um, I've, I have had some good and some bad experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I've set terribly high standards for myself and other people. Um, and I do spend a lot of time thinking over, perhaps overthinking. So I've gone through a series of coaches who um, I, I'm, I've, been searching for the right one. I've had some excellent business mentors and what I need is someone who just wants to have a laugh and is ready to kind of take the piss a bit and and I don't want to take everything so super seriously all the time. Yeah. Um, so I have had some really excellent business mentors, whether or not they were necessarily coaches. Um, and I have had some really interesting coaching experiences very recently um, have been incredibly, incredibly challenging in terms of and really, I suppose, dealing with this friction I have between what just wanting to wallow in the science and the information and then sharing that with other people and having to not be the expert so much as in conversation with someone and, cha- and, the, and they, the coach has been challenging me to dial it back a bit in terms of the information that you think you have to give and ask questions of someone else and find out what they need. Yeah. Um, and that has been really um, challenging for me, but incredibly useful because as an academic, we don't know soft skills development. <laughs> it's all about the, about the information. I know the science. I know the stuff. Yeah. I don't really need to know what you think about it. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's developing that side of myself, which the coaching has been encouraging. And then, I, I, I mean, I suppose finding someone with the right rapport for me is a has been um, part of that part of that journey. I'd- awesome. Well, that's that's really interesting. So, just um, really uh, quickly, I'm I'm curious about what was the most beneficial thing out of having a coach? Like you said, that they challenged you to think in a slightly different way, or or develop yourself yeah, in that just, sense. But- I mean, the thing they do some of them so well, and the magic that one of the coaches I have been working with brings is the questions that they yes. ask, asking these questions that you, asking these questions about stuff I have never considered. Yeah. And, and it's the question, it's the challenging you to think about yourself or your work or your thinking about your thoughts in a way, a way that you never have before. And I suppose that kind of brings back, you know, the kind of the narrative autobiographical past and your thoughts about yourself and your expectations of the future, like good questions, kind of combined with a good rapport, um, are a really a magic combination and for me it hasn't been that they've taught me something or they've shown me something it's that they've asked me a question that has made me go oh, that is yeah. really interesting I need to think about that really hard to work out the answer and I think that's a pretty cool skill to have yeah and that's a major distinction between a mentor and a coach you know like a mentor will teach you about the 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 path that they have already walked. Yeah, kind of give you the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas a coach is someone that is trained to help their clients become an expert on themselves. Yeah, and and yeah. really helping them to see deeper. So, yeah. so thanks for yeah. sharing now, that. I suppose the questions from the neuroscience perspective would they build a story in your mind um, in a way, and perhaps 
characters or a plot or something in there that, that hasn't been there before and I think that's that's really where the magic lies for me and having been coached awesome so the three rapid fire questions so what is your favorite quote I think it's that one about um what's the best cure for anything is salt water sweat tears or yeah. the sea I second that and what about book like what book has uh, impacted you the most in terms of your entrepreneurial journey and it, it doesn't have to be with entrepreneurship but but sort of your path like what was really a book that stood out for you in terms of the entrepreneurial stuff and this is so like kind of cheesy but it was really the first book I read that made me go you know you could actually build a business in this way was four hour work week yeah. which is really feels like so cheesy and cliche it's not a neuroscience book and, and I really didn't even kind of follow any of the guidelines from that and I don't think I could work a four-hour work week that <laughs> but for me it cracked open the idea of I suppose personal branding entrepreneurship in a way you know I could take an idea that I loved and wallow around in it and turn it into a business it, it, it kind of cracked open that world for me when I picked it up and read it and then set me off on a path I've never really sort of read a book and then kind of applied every aspect of it I often I you know just like, like most people you just take kind of notions or ideas or the gist and I remember when I got it out from the library the librarian said to me he, he said oh this is a classic <laughs> um, I was kind of a little bit embarrassed. I was embarrassed <laughs> getting a classic book like this out. Yeah, but it, it's I've never thought about it before, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. So that's the thing. Like, um, my I, room, I have hundreds of books every year, <laughs> um, and I just take a little bit from from them all. Really, I love books so much. I have yeah. bought so many. So, uh, final question: uh, What is something that the listeners can do or focus on this week to get them closer to building their own business? Oh, I think you should just go to bed earlier. Awesome! Yeah, <laughs> Sound like a yeah. Just um, you know, there's so many things that we can achieve if we're at, uh, we can achieve so much more if we focus on sleep. Yeah. and all the restoration that that brings and you know the creative insights it can give and I would just focus on going to bed earlier I know it's probably harder in your part of the world right now yes, it's very light at the moment a lot, a lot of the time yeah but you know we we are these beings that evolved on this planet and every cell in our body you know has a circadian rhythm that, that ticks in time to the you know the rising and the setting of the sun yeah. There's a few variations depending on your latitude, of course. Yeah. But yeah, I think prioritizing sleep and other things are then so much easier. Yeah. Awesome. So where can the listeners find you? Yeah. So my I have a website, drsarahmackay.com, M-C-K-A-Y.com, which has links out to my various courses and blog and, and whatnot. And then on social media, um, Instagram is where I am most of the time. And I know that's where we connected. Dr. Sarah Mackay. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And I'll link to that in the show notes and in the description yeah. box as well. So everyone can easily find it. Thank awesome. You. Thank so, you so much for that. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing so many amazing insights and, you know, sharing from your wisdom. Very appreciative of that. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with anyone who would benefit from listening in. As always, please leave a review, five stars for good karma. And if you think we need more mindfulness and spirituality in business, if you're interested in coaching with me 
head on over to my website and schedule a free discovery call. Finally, if you have any inquiries or you would like to interview me on your show, shoot me an email. Details are in the show notes over at my website, martinathomson.com. Have an amazing week. Cheers, guys. Oh, 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 oh,